Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome everyone to the Pelvic Health Podcast. It's Lori in your ears here. Today's episode, we are talking about cognitive hypnotherapy, especially in the form of helping people who have persistent pelvic pain, like vulvodynia, so pain in the vulval area. This episode is for people who have pain. It's also for clinicians who treat people that have pain. It's an absolutely mind-blowing episode and interview for me because I was very cynical about what cognitive hypnotherapy was. I like my science. I like to be nerdy. I like evidence-based practice. And this has it all. And Sharon's story and her history and how she came upon it and how she has combined it with our current knowledge of pain neurophysiology and the people she is working with all together has really blown my mind. So I'll get into her bio and straight into the episode so everyone can hear it as well. So Sharon Golbert was diagnosed with unprovoked vulvodynia in 1999 after a lifetime of intermittent pain And 10 years on from diagnosis and unsuccessfully trialing different treatments, she stumbled across self-hypnosis and later Quest Cognitive Hypnotherapy. Her curiosity to find out why it was working and how she could help others led her to seek out further training for a better grounding in pain neurophysiology and to understand best practice models from current up-to-date treatment methodologies and pain science. Sharon has a special interest in female and male pelvic pain and is now a trustee of the Vulval Pain Society. She hosts VPS webinars with specialist vulval pain clinicians, and you will find a selection of those on YouTube. They are great, so have a look at them. Sharon is currently working on the Pelvic Pain Toolkit, which includes short information videos with Pain Toolkit founder Pete Moore. This will be released later this year in 2020, and I cannot wait. It'll be so good. Sharon also runs CPD courses for health professionals and one-to-one mentoring for clinicians ready to learn from different modalities to provide better care. She encourages a multidisciplinary approach to pain management and for some complete relief and an effective treatment plan which treats the individual, the whole complex person, considering their values, beliefs, expectations, cognitive evaluations, contextual, cultural factors, and more. She's also the founder of Breakthrough Pain Program, a tailored, collaborative, and action-oriented approach which utilizes the cognitive hypnotherapy framework to help each unique individual experiencing persistent pain start living a better quality of life, more comfortably doing more of the things that give them joy. I hope you all love this episode as much as I did, and I'm going to listen to it again. There's so much that I want to talk to you about because... There's quite a bit I don't know, um, not just about the cognitive hypnotherapy, 
that I would like to discuss with you. And I looked at that little video that you've got on your website and oh, yeah. not still confused, but I'm just still so interested. Um, yeah. But would you mind sharing your story with us? So it's a long one. So I'd give you a shortened and condensed version of it. Um, so back in 1998, I started experiencing uh, vulval pain. And went to the doctors, had the usual thing of, oh, it's thrush, here's some thrush treatment. And, you know, month after month, going back for more thrush treatment, nothing's clearing up. And I just said to the doctor, I don't think this is what it is. There's mm. something else going on. But he was adamant that, no, it is definitely thrush. So I decided to get a second opinion. And um, he found out I got a second opinion. So both doctors got together. <laughs> and realized if I sought a second opinion, there must be something else going on. So um, I managed to get a referral to someone who then diagnosed me with vulvodynia, which of course we know is just a catch-all term for mm. it's vulval pain. Yeah, well, mm. I know that. But yeah, thanks. It meant, uh, <laughs> it meant that at least I was on some kind of path, um, put on tricyclics, which conked me out. And... Um, over the next 10 years, I just kept increasing the medication um, and it wasn't working and I, it was dampening down my kind of mental faculties, sure, mm. <laughs> so I couldn't work very effectively. And if I wanted to really work effectively, I would just come off the medication so that I could just go for it for a week, which is not particularly useful. Yeah. Um, but then I just stayed on it and increased for a number of years. Um, and saw another specialist here um, and she did all sorts of different tests and said, look, it is vulvodynia, you're on the right medication. But she said something that will stick with me forever because it kind of then, then really impacted my life because she said, you're probably going to have a lot of, have to take a lot of extended bed rest um you may have to stop working altogether or go part-time but this is going to be your life ouch so um now I wasn't going to have that so I just mm. thought well I'm not going to do that railed against it and of course I'm now frustrated and angry I'm ashamed because I can't talk about it all sorts of stuff going on and then over the next few years, what she said came to pass because my pain just intensified. I started passing out from the pain. I got up to pretty much the highest dose you can get on what I was at. But I was because I was passing out, I couldn't have the gabapentin or the pregabalin or anything like that. Wait, so were you passing out because of the pain or because of the medication? No, because of the pain. So it's when the symptoms came on and... It triggered IBS symptoms. Hmm. The two together, interesting combination. That was it. I, I would be, I would be on the floor, and it meant that I couldn't go out and about particularly safely. So I was at home for a long period of time, just in bed for years and years. Wow, it's a long time. It was a long time, and at some point. I just thought, because I was getting you know, sympathy from my friends, you know, who phoned me up, but really I wanted to live my life. 
Um, I was too young for this. I was in my 20s. And um, I don't know, something, you know, I kept reading self-help books and things like that. I was interested in coaching in and neuro-linguistic programming, stuff like that. So I was trying various things. Um, and then I thought, right, I'm going to have to, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. I am going to get myself better. So I just went into this. I'm going to try something for four to six months. And if that doesn't work, I'll throw it, bring in the next thing. And I did that for years. And I just promised myself that one day I would find something. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I could have, if I'd known about acceptance, maybe I would have accepted. But you know what? I'm sort of glad I didn't accept that I was going to happen. I did strive for something and I am glad I found a way out because for some people there is an answer and I think there's a distinction there. For some people the pain can disappear mm. um, and for some people the pain can move off to the background and they can get on with their life and either way it's it's better than the life I was having at yeah. the time. So a friend who is slightly bonkers said to me oh Sharon darling the thing you must try is self-hypnosis yeah I was like right okay well she's got all these extraordinary ideas I didn't realize there was any kind of scientific grounding in self-hypnosis but I found myself in a bookshop and this self-hypnosis scripts book started winking at me I'm just gonna how hard is this gonna be yeah. I'll just record one of these in a funny voice, right? Because that's what it's about. <laughs> and it was nothing to do with pain. I just recorded it. But it, it's something in it called to me. That's all I could say. And looking back at it, there were things about self-esteem, love, loving myself, loving others, compassion. And those are the things that worked. And within seven days, I was able to leave the house on my own for the first time in years. Seven days. Massive in seven days wow now, I wasn't I wasn't pain-free but yeah. I was better and well enough to and had the confidence to get out there and it had given me something um and I didn't even realize that really happened I'd spoken to a friend like in the evening and she said hold on back up back up there did you just say you went out of the house on your own to the shops I said yeah she goes how did you do that what what have you done and so I was in denial for ages. There was anything to do with self-hypnosis because I was just, it can't be that. So what Surely did you think it, it was? I didn't. I was just trying to find anything, anything like, I don't know. Was it, was I, was I eating differently? Anything that wouldn't be self-hypnosis because I didn't yeah. understand it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it was a couple of years later, I was sitting down with the same friend and I said, you know, I just can't find an answer to why I started getting better. And it all started with that self-hypnosis script. And I just went, oh, oh, right. I need to investigate further. <laughs> so had you only looked at it or done it once? Um, no, I listened. I was listening to it every night. For seven days. For seven days. Yeah, and then I okay. carried on listening to it. Yeah. And I okay. carried on listening to it. I think for, for years, if I remember correctly, just every yeah. night just became part of my routine and going yeah. to sleep. So then I went off and trained to be a cognitive hypnotherapist. By this time, I'd done training in coaching, neurolinguistic programming, and then I found cognitive hypnotherapy. And I'd been to a few hypnotherapy schools. They didn't really seem to answer because I, I asked them whether they might know. You know, I had a few questions for them and it wasn't yeah. rigorous enough. It didn't have answers for me I needed to know the biology I needed mm. something 
And so I went to the Quest Institute for this cognitive hypnotherapy interview and I thought, this is it. I found, found my place. Let's see how this goes. And it was brilliant because in that journey, then I worked even more on myself and it meant that I was able to become completely free. And that to me hadn't even been a possibility. I just thought it would diminish and, you know, it'd be there and it would come and go. I didn't realize I'd be able to live a full life again. And that's what it did for me. So, you know, it's, it's not magic. It was, it was work. Yeah. Right. No one waved a, a pocket watch at me or magic wand and said, yeah, you're fixed. They no will put me in a hypnotic trance because the self hypnosis bit got me so far. Yeah. And then the deep dive into all the other stuff, the kind of the emotions, the stuff that was triggering fight or flight response, stuff in my past that started becoming uncovered, working on all of that one by one, all these layers just freed me and I let go of an enormous amount so it was kind of a journey of self-growth. How long from when you discovered that book to where the point where you're like oh my goodness I am free from most of it or all of it? Oh let's see probably um, I would say at least four or five years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because 2007 is when I picked up the book. 2010 yeah. is when I went to train at the Quest Institute. Yeah. So remember, I had a period in between just trying to be in denial. Yeah. <laughs> um, it could have happened faster if I hadn't been in denial. Yeah, but still a lot um, of work and still a bit of time. Like people always say, if I'm going to try something, should I try it for six weeks? And I'm thinking, well, I might need to work on something right. a little bit longer than that. Right. Right. And if I'd found the cognitive hypnotherapy sooner and gone down that path, it, it would have happened sooner, sure. Hmm. But it would still be a length of time and it's work. You know, you've got to show up and do the work in between, whether that's, you know, listening to MP3s in between or exercises to do in between. And it meant that as I did that stuff, it meant that I could do physio. Physio yeah. wasn't even an option before because it was hmm. excruciating um and it just opened up my life again so yeah that's amazing so what so because you've done all of this other background education can like what exactly is it how is it different to other things that you've learned I think because it covers so much and it it really works for the individuals so you know someone turns up with vulvodynia Two, two women with albedinia or two men with prostatitis or pelvic mm -hmm. pain or whatever kind of pain no one is treated the same you're treated yeah. as you you're an individual your experiences and i think the first point the the starting point is the most important um it's identifying what you want and it's not about being pain-free um, so I hear this a lot from, from people that I work with, you know, what is it that you want out of this? And, oh, I want to be pain free. I want the pain to not be there. And really it's more about, well, if it weren't there, or if you didn't really notice it, it was in the background somewhere, what kind of things would you be doing? This is about engaging with meaningful activities, really understanding you as a person, who are you without this pain? Um, 
what are your values? What, what matters to you? So it was re-engaging in life where sometimes when there's persistent pain, things seem to shrink, your world shrinks, you don't see your friends anymore, especially with pelvic pain. Mm. You know, the things that often come up are, well, you know, I can't go out for drinks with my friends because how can I explain this? I can't go out to a restaurant because I can't sit for a long period of time. And if it were back pain, I would just say it's back pain, but I can't talk about this. And then all the other stuff wrapped around it, you know, the shame and the cultural stuff, the societal stuff. So the social world shrinks as well. So this is about re-engaging with your values so that you have this goal. So you might have a big goal, but then bringing it all the way back to now to what's that first small change? What's the small first small thing you'd like to do and re-engage in? And we work towards that. And then we just look at the barriers that might be there that keep the person from achieving that. And then the barriers, yeah, you know, fight, flight, freeze, you know, what are the emotions that are coming up? Is there anger, frustration, you know, resentment, um, all the kind of classic emotions, but whatever that means to the person, we just get it from them. We're kind of just watching more for where there's a mismatch. So, you know, someone might say, oh yeah, I'm perfectly happy, but their shoulder kind of goes up to say, yeah, no, they're not really. And then you're, you're asking them, well, you said you're really happy, but I noticed that your shoulder went up when you said that. What's that about? What's really going on? So we're kind of just feeding back what we're seeing, facial expressions wise, voice tone, gestures, body language, and seeing if there's something else going on that doesn't match up with what the person is saying. And um, other times it's fairly obvious that someone's kind of emotional, or angry, and it's not just about right now in the present moment what are the things that might be sustaining an upregulated nervous system it's also about hey what was going on in your life around about the time your symptoms emerged in the six to twelve months or so before your symptoms emerged because we want to work out hey you may have had um, let's say there was an infection to start off with or there was an injury you know, there was something going on. Of course, we know that, you know, tissue injury healing time after that, you know, it's, it's a short period of time usually. So what is it that sustained this kind of amplified response? Um, and so we want to find out, was there something else going on in your life? Now, sometimes it's pretty obvious, you know, maybe the death of a, a loved one um or uh, a job loss or something so a loss of identity you know Mm. what does this mean to you other times it's not as obvious it might just be something there kind of in the background almost just dripping in under the surface and the person themselves aren't aware of it they are they think they're okay yeah no everything was fine And so we dig a bit deeper. So that's where the, you know, it's a very much a conversational style of hypnosis. No one feels like they've gone under really deep. Hey, sometimes they do, but, you know, we need to keep them talking to find out what's going on. Um, It's not necessarily a relaxing process because we want to engage with, hey, what's the problem that's going on here? Not you know, if someone's relaxed, it's the opposite of the state they're in. We kind of want to witness the state they're in when they're kind of um, engaging with things that might be problematic. 
um, whether it's emotions or um, other kind of amplifiers. Um, but it's different layers. So nocebo can play a part. You know, it certainly did for me. Um, you know, what messages have people received in the past? Um, who are they surrounded by? Who are their friends? Have they got someone they can rely on? Can they talk to at least one person? Because that's important. We're emotional and social beings. Um, we want to belong to a tribe. And if we can't even talk to one person because we're ashamed or whatever it is, then, hey, you know, we need that connection. So it's uncovering all of that. And most of the work happens um, at this beliefs level. You know, what are the underlying beliefs that might be amplifying or driving things or keeping this cycle going? Um, so those beliefs might be um, erroneous beliefs about how pain works. Hey, I've mm. seen an MRI scan and, you know, I've seen you know, my slipped disc or whatever it is they might have been told. Um, I've got the evidence. So it might be education around that. Um, or it might be beliefs about them themselves. I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. Um, in which case we work on those. Um, and then expectation is a big one. You know, if I sit on that hard chair, for more than 10 minutes then i know i'm going to be in pain because it's happened in the past and of course all of this is you know with cognitive hypnotherapy we've got this model called the matrix model and it is just a model it's not fact but it's a nice model and ultimately we're just what's happening in this environment that you're currently in or a particular context what's the sensory information that you're taking in that then on an unconscious level is being processed and the output is well there's a there's a little bit of emotion um or there's a reaction or there's a behavioral change we want to work out what the pattern matches so in the example of the chair it might be i've seen the chair i've got the visual evidence and the unconscious mind just goes well yes that's happened before and that was really tough and they have an emotional response and my emotional response it doesn't even have to be anything the person's that aware of necessarily um ultimately we're just talking about chemical reaction you know whether that's a little bit of adrenaline or, or whatever else is dripping into the system to, to amplify systems so it's that that we're looking at we want to uncover the the pattern match you know yeah. what is it you're seeing in your current environment that you're that is being perceived as a possible threat that is sending you into overprotective mode. Does that sort of make sense? It does. And yeah. so it has, I don't know much about hypnotherapy to begin with, but like the video that was on your website that showed that little drawing. Um, yes. And you know, it shows the little clock and they're like, and we're not really making you go to sleep. And so yeah. this whole process of uncovering you know, the emotion and the goal, like, is that still part of the hypnotherapy part? Like our people, when you talk about, I think that term really throws me. Where does the hypnosis side of things come into play? Is there real hypnosis? Like where, I don't know if it's the term that throws me. <laughs> yeah, it probably is a term because, you know, when we think of hypnosis, we probably think of stage hypnosis. Um, and Definitely. Put into a trance. Yeah. Um, and they're acting a bit weird. 
they're not in control anymore. And that is just a show. Um, it's got nothing to do with the therapy side. Um, so hypnotherapy is different. And then you've got direct and traditional hypnotherapy, which is a little bit more prescriptive. So let's say someone is, is coming in and um, what you might be presented with is a book of scripts and a script is pulled out and you might be told to walk down a flight of stairs or go on a relaxing walk or you know if it's a burning pain then you might imagine an ice ice world or whatever it is it's it's more prescriptive um and it's working specifically on the pain okay itself. so the the gathering the information part really is not the well obviously is part of well, forming what you're going to do for treatment it's the two different types so that that kind of working on the pain bit is traditional hypnotherapy okay and cognitive hypnotherapy is working with a person ah, okay so cognitive hypnotherapy is what do we need to do how do we need to work with this person in order that it's not just about pain relief it's about what is it you need again it's it's engaging with your values so the whole process of uncovering you know what's important the values um the social aspects um and then we might kind of go back to the first event connected with this anger in your life and work out what that is and again the way we do that um, might start off as having a conversation but we have ways in which we kind of just go a little bit I say deeper but when I say deeper I don't mean you're in a such a deep hypnotic trance you can't just open your eyes but in a way we want the conscious mind out of the way and mm. um, the rational thinking mind out of the way a little bit because you know we know the chemical reaction happens before the thought process happens so getting the thinking mind out of the way is useful so we might use um metaphor to get there or if you let's say someone feels anger in their chest and um, we might say well if you could give that you know what's what's the qualities of that anger describe it to me well it feels like it's tight okay now give it a color give it a shape and by that time it throws people because it's suddenly not really rational to give feelings a color and a shape mm. and you've got into a, a dreamlike world already just thinking about it slightly differently and ultimately that's what it's like when we work with people you know when we're dreaming we're doing something useful right um ultimately you know the processing is happening um looking at what's happened in the past day or two so you're dreaming dreams sometimes don't really make much sense but some, there's a useful process going on and ultimately that's what we're doing here we might be uncovering something in the past that's linked to this feeling that you currently have mm. um so look you know when we talk about shame you know um an example i could give is um you know this there's shame involved in having the pain and then we go back to the first experience linked to the shame and it turns out the parents didn't really want to talk about sex 
or it's a the common one was such that yeah and so then we would go back and have a look at it with an adult size do you still want those beliefs for yourself or do you want to change them would you like to update those beliefs that were laid down at that point and the things that you understood from your parents because ultimately what the person is doing is bringing all that old stuff into the present moment and playing it out yeah, without realizing it yeah without realizing it yeah so we're kind of doing it in in that's that's kind of one way of doing it is going back to the memory and i'd say look memories are not real you know every time we we talk about something that happened in the past it's in a highly changeable state um so just look at it as a dream you know if you don't even remember the memory it's okay let's just see it as a metaphor that we're going to work with and we're just going to change the metaphor and some people do say i'd forgotten about that memory yeah. and that did happen and other people say i don't know if it happened that way like it doesn't matter yeah we've got a representation to work with and change let's update it how would you update that what are the beliefs and the ways you want this young child to grow free now it's so interesting because i am always telling my patients who i see a lot of women who have pain with sex or um, they're unable to use tampons and there's a whole bunch of them that it started from the very first period of the very first time trying to have sex but then there's all these other yeah. women whether it's menopause or we can't work it out yet they had a period of time where sex was fine and then it's not and then it goes on for years and years and we talk a lot about you were mentioning physiotherapy you know we assess and we can help ways through pelvic floor muscles but i always say half of your pelvic floor muscle tension is not coming from your conscious control other things are driving it and you have to address those other things but you know we we have some ways that i think as physios we can help to work out and uncover but that's often when i will refer my patients to a psychologist to talk to to work out ways of, you know, dealing with pain and managing pain, but is what you're doing, is that what, do psychologists do that? Is this like a different option that a psychologist would do or how would it be different? Because I feel like that's exactly what people need. Yeah, it is, it is different. So um, a, a lot of people that have studied cognitive hypnotherapy have come from other backgrounds so some of them are psychologists um, or counselors um, so they have had that training and then they come to cognitive hypnotherapy and go ah oh, this is this is the missing bit this is the yeah. this is the unconscious stuff that we now know, now know how to do so you know um i think it's look the cbt um the conscious processing all of that is really really useful but the unconscious stuff and the drivers have to be addressed too. Um, and the framework of cognitive hypnotherapy, and it's quest cognitive hypnotherapy, I suppose I have to be quite, quite definite about that because mm -hmm. I think there are other people that call themselves cognitive hypnotherapists. Okay. And we're talking about quest cognitive hypnotherapy, um, QCH is a mouthful, purely because we've had research done and we have published research. Um, but it was into anxiety and stress. And we use yeah. the same, you know, GAD. GAD 7, PHQ 9, the usual outcome measures. Um, and the framework's quite broad, and it means that, you know, the, the four quadrants 
we look at a context. Are there contexts within which you're better? Because we know that when someone says they've got pain and it's persistent pain, they're not going to be experiencing it at the same level all the time. Yeah. You know, and we might get them to rate that right at the start, but really it's not the main what we want to do with that is show them yeah well sometimes it drops down to a three out of ten and it's only other times that it's nine out of ten but the thing you're focusing on is the nine out of ten can we focus on the three out of ten to see what's different there and then you know we do work around that so they can see what the difference is um so we want to know what environmental factors and by environmental factors i mean not just the environment around the Mm. person but the internal environment could it be they feel a little twinge and that triggers an emotional response um, and a thought process of, oh, no, is it back? Yeah. Um, so that kind of context stuff. Um, the structure is structure quadrant is what I would say is more traditional about it. Um, you have a, a lot of people using the structure side, which is um, the qualities of the pain and changing the perception of the pain. So, um, you know, someone talks about a burning pain. Well, what would you do to take the burning away? If you could imagine taking it away, what would make it feel better and exploring that kind of stuff? Oh, I'd put an ice pack on it. Okay. So do that, put an ice pack on it. Imagine what that's like. In their mind. Um, In their mind, in their mind. Okay. Um, And exploring that kind of stuff. And it's important to do because we know that we can help people if and there's an important question if we say to someone right what kind of things do you think are causing or amplifying your symptoms and let's take the chair example again well if i sit down for more than 10 minutes okay just imagine that you've had you have to sit down in the chair for 10 minutes now if you're already seeing kind of you know, exasperation and and a little bit of stress or anxiety on someone's face or their body language, or you see them kind of locking into kind of almost freeze, you know, we can, you know, we can do something with that because ultimately, you know, we need them to relax. If by imagining just sitting down in a chair, they're going, ouch, we know we can work with that. Yeah. So often it's about showing someone, hey, you can make it worse, right? By imagining it. So guess what? If you can make it worse by imagining it in your head, then you can certainly make it better. Um, and so, you know, that's that side of it. And then the biggest bit is this, the beliefs, you know, uncovering all the beliefs. And, and usually it isn't just one. Um, for some people, it might, might be one trigger event, in which case, great. Um, uh, and if there's a trauma attached, if it was a relationship that was bad, we might use a trauma release technique. So a lot of us are from different backgrounds and you can hang different therapies within this wider cognitive hypnotherapy framework. Um, so, you know, we've got cognitive and behavioral elements, gestalt, um, things from transactional analysis, NLP, certainly coaching, mindfulness. Um, and you can hang all of that in the quadrants and we can do that in a conversational hypnotic sort of way. Um, so what we're doing is the, the person isn't reliant on the session for some magic to happen. Yeah. Because the real magic happens in between. 
So whatever has come up in the session that they've learnt might get turned into an MP3, especially for them. And then they just listen to it each day. So remember, that's the bit that I did. I was yeah. listening to something each day. And this is about kind of embedding new beliefs, kind of helping them grow. Because ultimately, you want some new neural connections yeah. um, from, you know, I'm ashamed to, you know, I'm fine. I'm a human being. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm, you know, I'm okay to be a sexual being or whatever it is. Um, I'm not worthy might turn into I am worthy. Um, whatever it is for the person, we don't dictate that. The patient always dictates how the session goes and we just work with what emerges. And look, I do not doubt that people can have beliefs of um, inadequacy and shame with pain in their knee or their elbow, but I just feel like it's so much more important when it is the genital area yes. for men and women that addressing that side just seems even more important. It really is. And, um, you know, I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, we probably wouldn't be seeing as many people um, as we are now. And I'm really glad that we have a more open way of talking about these things. At least some of us do. And we can embrace social media and get the message out there so that, you know, people can can search and perhaps find us and find the right person and whether it's a physio and you know I get all my referrals from from other therapists physios and manual therapists only when we can see that that's that's a good fit this is a yeah. nice you know this is a good jigsaw kind of fitting together here because we know that multidisciplinary approach is is most useful you know yeah. for, for many people but you're right when it comes to pelvic pain we shy away from it. We don't want to talk about it. Oh my God, it's that area. And you only have to look at all the different names we seem to call the yeah. vulva. Or it's just, just call it what it is. And there's a lot of, can be a lot of unpacking to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. When it comes to pelvic pain, uh, I think we need to get the word out there that there is help available. Yeah. We're absolutely not saying it's all in your head and you're imagining it. Yeah, because it's real to you. It's a real experience. But what can we do about it? Because yeah. whether you go along with the new IS, IS definition of pain or, or not, ultimately it is always going to be a, a mix of things that creates that, that pain experience for the person. You know, the, the emotional side, the, the physical side. But what are those components? And I think we need to get it out there. There is always, you know, an, an emotional component. Yeah. Whether that's an after effect because the person has experienced the pain or whether it preceded it and has sustained it. It doesn't matter. It's part of the jigsaw that probably needs to be worked upon. So how are you working with patients? You said you have a lot of referrals. Um, now that COVID has changed so much, like were you face to face with people or have you always been discussing things more online? Um, I've been online for a good few years now. So okay. when I back in 2011 and 2012, I think 2011, end of 2011 is when I started practicing. Okay. And I had a physical therapy room at that point and I did yeah. for a number of years. 
but I realized that, um, you know, pain is an interesting area to work with, and especially pelvic pain. And it became really apparent that people were traveling in to see me. And I'm in London um, and, you know, wherever you are in the country, you can probably get a train into London. However, it's not fair that people were traveling maybe three hours in to come and see me and three hours back. Maybe Some sitting flew in to see that me. hurt. Yes. Yeah. I thought this is not conducive to well-being. No. This might be what we're leading up to yeah. that they'd like to take a long train journey or a, or a, or a flight, but ultimately this isn't helping. Um, yeah. So I asked a few people whether they'd be okay with online therapy. We tried it out. Um, and yeah, certainly for the last, I think four or five years, I've been purely online. Okay. And do you have like, um, I don't know how it works with regulations. Can you have international clients? Yes, we can. Yeah. Okay. Um, there yeah. are a few countries where we can't, a few yeah. Middle Eastern countries where we can't work yeah. um, with, but generally, yes, we can. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the law would be pertaining to the UK yeah the uk law because i'm practicing from here so we are covered for that as long as um you know my insurance covers me it's getting the right insurance for that yeah, yeah. all right and what you have because you've got a website like i said i was looking at earlier um the with if people are listening and they're like okay i really want to talk to her um do they there was a program set up on your website that kind of had a few stages is that what everybody goes through or do they contact you and you set up like a one-on-one -on -one yeah. um so there's... group therapy sorry that's what it, well, that's what i saw yeah so the group therapy is on hold at the moment oh yeah um yeah, yeah but uh, i am doing one-to-ones and the one-to-one -one okay. journey it's probably the most honoring process one-to-one -one, because you know you're getting that attention and it's built depending on what you need and also what's appropriate for you. And this journey isn't for everyone. So I have a chat with people and I probably take on maybe six or seven out of every 10 people that contact me, because for some people I would say, you're not quite ready for this yet, okay. or this isn't appropriate for you. I would suggest perhaps CBT or mindfulness or something else, you know, just kind of what makes you say that? Straight. A lot of factors. Um, first of all, this is not a passive process. Mm. Um, there is work involved in between. So there's a commitment. Uh, if the person isn't willing to put in the time um, and the effort to, you know, for their well-being, then yeah. this isn't the approach for them. And usually what I do is I'll have that chat and say, let's have a follow-up chat. In the meantime, I've got this free email series. Um, how about you access that and read through? It's just one email every day for 10 days and see how you go with that. And I have to say, some people come back and go, that's all I've needed. I've, that's all I've needed. Um, yeah. I've got it. Something's clicked. I've, I've got it, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if, uh, when we have the follow-up call, the person hasn't accessed the email series, then there's some questions there. Yeah. So what stopped you from, from accessing it? Because it's free. 
and remember our process is an active approach you have to take action in between in order to make this stick and make this work if we're building new neural pathways here and you're learning something new there needs to be consistent action in between there's no magic in the session that suddenly builds a neural pathway it's not going to work like that so if they don't access the email series then it's it's a, it's a this isn't for you right now. You might yeah. need another approach. And look, there are other approaches that um, kind of traditional hypnotherapy approaches that some people do really well with. Um, and I think there's a place for traditional hypnotherapy. Um, but for me, this is about ethical treatment. Hmm. Um, this isn't about being reliant on someone to fix you. So if someone comes to me and they have this mentality of you're the expert, I want you to fix me, then this is not going to be the approach because this isn't about fixing. This is about engaging and ultimately the patient themselves being the driver in that recovery process. It's so important and everything you've said is so cool because it sounds like motivational interviewing, explain pain, graded motor imagery, like it's all of yeah. these pain neurophysiological things that we learn, but then we learn all of these things and they all make sense. And then we go as physios, we're like, okay, so how do we apply it? And it's almost like you've taken it all and you said there's science kind of involved in it and you're even talking about neuroplasticity, but then it sounds like there's a very big practical side to then what to do from there, which I find is a big missing piece um, for a lot of health professionals that they may understand that. And I'm one of them. We understand it all. And there's a part of things that we can talk to our patients about because we know that they're separate individuals and something is driving this and we're trying to get to the answer. Um, but there's a whole bigger side that I think that we're missing. And it's, again, when you said at the beginning, it was your missing piece and you go, oh my God, this could be so many of my patients, you know, I think would be extremely helpful. Um, so you, we, well, we didn't really meet at La Pub, but I was there <laughs> um, with Bronnie talking and yeah. she was talking about accepting pain. So what were your thoughts on that? Um, I, you know, sometimes I'm a bit conflicted by it, but I I think there's a place for it. And, you know, when someone starts, let's say the kind of the QCH journey, it is very much about your pain may not be alleviated completely. It might be in the background, but you can get on with your life. Are you okay with that? Because if you're looking for complete pain relief, I can't promise that. And if that's what you're after, this journey isn't for you. So in a way, what we're saying is you kind of have to accept that there's a a possibility here that it may remain. And I think there's an acceptance is important because if you're always grasping for pain relief, I think it keeps you from being better. Mm. And over the years, one of the things I've noticed is the patients who are desperate to want that relief right now are the ones that have the longer journey mm. um, because they want it now. Um, and so 
I often say I think acceptance and commitment therapy might be a better road for you because I see that's part of the problem it's mm. for them is yeah. wanting it now and in a way there has to be a letting go there's too much fight or flight caught up in wanting to be yeah. well in that person and in those circumstances I think acceptance and commitment therapy is, is a wonderful thing um, the reason I'm conflicted is, of course, my personal experience. Um, what if you just accepted it? Yeah. Would I have got better? I don't know. No, probably I wouldn't have dug yeah. deeper and yeah. gone through these layers. So, And I know Pete Moore um, in the Pain Toolkit, his first tool is acceptance. Mm. And there's a real value in it. But he's talking about self-management there. And yeah. I think acceptance absolutely belongs there. It's an important tool. Yeah. Um, and acceptance is kind of that first thing towards managing better. Because if you accept it, then you're kind of going, right, what do I need to do to make sure I'm okay? Yeah. You know, so that might involve pacing, um, you know, and values driven activity rather than I have been told to exercise in this specific way for 10 minutes a day and, which is a nonsense, of course. It's it's got to be what's important to you, what's meaningful yeah. for you. Um, so acceptance, I think, does play a big part. But the conflict is there with me. Had I accepted it, would I have got better? Yeah. Um, but look, there's a. I don't, I don't know whether you know this, but um, a few years ago, I tell this story, and it's it's still when I tell it, I just think, oh my god, this crazy it's um but amazing <laughs> a few years ago my dad was in um in intensive care and he was in a bad way and every other day we were being told look it's bad you may lose him today it was a really intense time for us and we just went in every day and I just use hypnotic language the whole time. He's in an induced coma. So I don't know whether he can hear me. They've said he can't, you know, pass urine today. I'm going to be talking about rivers today. <laughs> and, you know, I was just like, what can I use yeah. out of my toolbox? Because he can't communicate with me. But anything that I'm hearing that they're saying this isn't working, what hypnotic language can I use that he might understand? So, hey, I don't know whether any of that had an impact but it i felt like i was doing something rather than just sitting there you know yeah. staring at him and you know at some point i said to myself if i carry on like this i'm not looking after myself i'm not doing my daily yoga i'm eating sure but i am you know not doing my daily yoga i'm just quickly eating going straight to the hospital i'm there all day then i'm taking phone calls come back and the phone doesn't stop ringing and i'm taking phone calls from relatives you know and then going to bed and this is there's no self-care i'm gonna pay for this and yeah oh yeah i paid for it about five weeks five or six weeks in i went to the hospital walked in and as the day progressed, I started noticing little twinges, a bit of pelvic pain. Then my back was a little bit sore. Then I started noticing other kind of bits that weren't comfortable. By the end of the day, I couldn't walk without oh, no. massive feedback. And uh, I was just 
a very, very slow shuffle to get out of the building. And in my head, I'm going, oh my God, what have I done here? What have I done? And I'm trying to pretend that everything's okay, but clearly things aren't okay. My face, I'm trying to be, yeah, yeah, great, fine here. Just don't look at me. <laughs> and I had to be helped into a taxi. Um, got back and I, I said to myself, I know what I've done here. And I know what I need to do. I need to put myself through a cognitive hypnotherapy session. <laughs> can you do it to yourself? So I did. Yeah, you can. Because yeah. all, all hypnosis yeah. is self-hypnosis. And once yeah. you have these tools, this is what That's I mean right. about you're no longer dependent on anyone. Yeah. You're learning how to utilize um, things yourself, how your body works, how your mind works. It's such an empowering journey. So, you know, patients fly afterwards. You know, we leave the door ajar should they not be sure about something. But ultimately, yeah. you know, they're able to do it. They have this kind of almost a, was it someone said, um, you've given me a manual for my brain. I thought, well, okay, if that's what you want to call it, sure. <laughs> but it is, it's like a wellness thing. It's a well-being kind of go-to. I know what to use. So I knew what I needed to do. I wasn't hitting my values. So I sat down, wrote out my values and what I needed to do to hit my values. What beliefs did I have going on? And of course, there were all sorts of things going. What emotions have I got going? Yes, I've got all of this going on. So I, I don't know, I went for a few hours just working with myself and I'd written out lots of stuff and just kind of just took myself through a process. And I do this quite a bit. Look, in the early days, I used to record myself on video and the amount of times I'd managed to headbutt the microphone as I was doing it. <laughs> um, but now I can just do it wherever I am. As long as I'm, you know, it's a safe place. I can just kind of put my, you know, just go where I need to go to work and, and be well. So I did that. But this was a big one, right? Because yeah. I was having massive feedback. I had like the pelvic pain, sciatica down both legs. I didn't even know that was possible. Um, lower back pain, mid back pain, migraine. It, it was. It just seemed every pain I'd ever had in my life came back came at back. one time. Oh. It was just bonkers because I'd never had it all at the same time before. Um, and what I got out of that was a very clear path of what I needed to do, what actions I needed to take, and this is about promising and keeping your promise. And I'm promising to my unconscious mind or whatever you want to call it, I'm making a promise. Yes, I am going to stick to this now. I've made a promise. I'm going to stick to it. And um, I wanted to know how quickly I'd get better. And I thought it's probably going to take a couple of weeks at least, you know, when I've had sciatica before, it's taken a little while. Yeah. And I need to be able to move a little bit more. Guess how long it took me. You sat down. You said you did it for what? Three hours. Yeah, a few I went hours. To sleep. Yeah. yeah, couple days. Yeah. So the next day, I was able to walk again. Two days later, I was able to run again. Oh wow! <laughs> wow. And you know, in a way, I've kind of needed convincers all along. Yeah. This journey. Yeah. Because I am a natural skeptic. Yeah. I like evidence. And if I don't have the evidence, I'm just, mm, yeah, might work for other people, but 
it's probably something else going on there. Um, and there's just so much I remember learning in cognitive hypnotherapy that I just thought, well, yeah, probably won't work though. It's probably probably not credible. And until you utilize it on yourself, and I think I just, at that point, maybe I just needed something massive to show me this is what's possible. Yeah. And I was completely comfortable two days later. Well, you said memories lie. So maybe your memories lied about it working 10 years ago and it wasn't that. So you have almost have to have a flare up to reconvince yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, so you look, you know, you know, we talk about receptors and their lifespan and, you know, bioplasticity and neuroplasticity. And I say, look, this is, you know, this is a bit of a journey. There's, there's stuff to do. Of course, for me, I'd been well before and mm. maybe it just snapped back into, yeah, oh yeah, we remember, yeah. we're well, it's okay, yeah, let's go. And I had that neural pathway ready to go yeah. and that's all I needed. But it's not like flipping a switch for most mm. people. This is like a dialing down process as the changes happen because unless there is one, one traumatic event that we're working on, yeah. And we use something like, you know, EMDR or an updated version of AMDR or any any kind of desensitization or trauma release technique. Unless it's just one trauma, ultimately there's probably going to be a few things. Yeah. Um and we've got to be gentle with it, I think, because you know, for persistent pain, if the nervous system is already quite overactive and upregulated, if we're digging into things um, that might be uncomfortable to deal with. Remember, this isn't a relaxing process necessarily. Yeah. We're not going on a lovely beach walk or whatever is your relaxing place. Whilst we might set those up as nice resources to have, ultimately the work lies in looking at the challenging stuff. Yeah. So we go gently. Um, we make sure the person has the resources to calm their nervous system and learn techniques to calm their nervous system initially so that when we do dig into some of the challenging stuff, they know what to do to, to calm things back down again. So yeah. it's, it's a gentle honoring process. I think that's important. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, the quick fix thing, it doesn't fly with me. It doesn't work for most people, though, anyway, especially when they've had pain for 10 years in a very special yeah. area. Yeah. yeah. And look, I, I've trained in quick fix techniques, too, because I want to know what it is they're doing. Yeah. Um, but what tends to happen and what I've seen happening is that it can work and it can happen. It can happen in the session. They go away and the person's well. But then a few weeks later or a few months later, the symptoms are back. Yeah. And it's, it's not ethical to do that. And there needs to be a follow-up process to see whether people are still well. And if they're not, what have we done wrong? I think what, what I like about um, QCH is this, um, this ethic of something better may come along. You know, one of the things that we utilize, you know, something else may come along that surpasses that, that is better than that. And we can't be proud. We need to chuck that thing away if it's not working anymore. 
and bring this new thing into the framework and make sure we know what that, what that is and be trained in it. So there's no room for ego here. This isn't about us. You know, this is about that patient, that pelvic pain patient sitting in front of you, their story, what they want and what might work for them as an individual. And that is going to be different for each person. So we can't be too proud and think, well, I've always used this and it's been really effective. <laughs> hey, what if something else comes along that's far more effective? Time to chuck it away. Yeah. Bring this in. Um, I think we can all do with a bit of that. I heard Lauren Mosley speak last year and he said something like, if you're still doing what you were doing two years ago, then you may be doing more harm than good. And, you know, everyone just sits still and they're kind of a little bit of a gasp and a silence. Uh-oh. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Yeah. You know, this is evolving all the time. We need to evolve with it. Yeah. Oh, I have loved, I'm like looking at the time going, no, no, already. Oh my gosh, it's already been an hour. Oh, you've answered so much of what I have been wondering for so long, but I didn't expect everything that you've just said. So are you doing teaching for health professionals or courses or yeah so um i mentor health professionals yeah. um so um certainly hypnotherapists who want to learn about yeah. pain biology pain science and yeah. ethical use of hypnotherapy yeah. and that's all hypnotherapists and other therapists so physical therapists manual therapists who want to learn about changing beliefs and yeah. this kind of missing bit yeah. because i think unless we all learn to work together and learn from each other this is why i end up in kind of the pub scientific and yeah. noise courses and lots of that stuff because i find the physio side and the explained pain side and all of that fascinating and i can see we're doing the same stuff yeah. right but we need to work together Ultimately, you know, we might talk about expectation and other people might talk about predictive processing, but we're doing the same stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, we may have some of the answers and you may have some of the answers. And by working together, it means we have a better care plan for people. Yeah. So, yes, um, I do one to one mentoring. But if it's an organization, then I do organizational mentoring. But everything's yeah. online at the moment. Yeah. So. Oh, look, that's useful for us, especially because I don't think we're going to be traveling out of Australia for probably two yeah. years. They won't, they may not let us back in. 